Michael Horton, Michael Horton is a seminary professor out in California, Westminster Seminary, California, and in a recent article entitled, Faith is Not Wishful Thinking. Faith is not wishful thinking, it is defiance. He asks a simple question. Question to us all. What drives you? What drives you? Horton says, it was a Saturday and I flipped on the TV for an extraordinarily long time. Seemingly everything was exercise equipment, how to become real estate rich with no money down, and steps to financial security. To which I would add, buy this car and this beverage and you will be happy and you will be in the mountains and you will have beautiful women surrounding you. but I'm still just alone with my beverage in my room. (laughs) Yet as much as we make sport of this sort of thing, it does indeed attract us. That's because as human beings, we are wired inherently for law. Tell me what to do and I'll get it done. Tell me what to do and I'll get it done. God's law is inborn in us, in our conscience. The law of God is on our hearts. It's part of our moral makeup. To that extent, it is good. To that extent, the law can direct us. But here's the problem, Horton says. The law can direct us, but it cannot drive us. The law can direct us, but it cannot drive us. Indeed, if it does drive us, it drives us only to despair as lawbreakers or with a false sense of our own ability to keep the law to self-righteousness. What drives you. What drives you? And whatever drives you, that will be de facto as a functional savior, your greatest law. Now we all have things that drive us, sometimes things that drive us more than the Lord. And I know that I see this in my own life all the time. Security, comfort, people like me, money, getting likes on a post, getting views, having my family well-kept and Put together, things are okay, therefore I'm okay. And yet, the gospel is in the business of realigning graciously, mercifully, and for your good, yet still realigning our priorities. So, N.T. Wright, a Reformed Anglican scholar, tells this little anecdote. If the house is on fire, what will you grab as you escape? Think about it. What would you take? house is on fire. Some of y'all house is so big you probably couldn't even get out if it was on fire. Your children, of course, if they can't walk themselves, that's not the time when you lean down, dad, and say, you know, suck it up, take one for the team. Your wallet, your computer, passport, personal documents, but maybe a precious photograph or the wristwatch your grandfather gave you, a stack of letters from someone you dearly love. Then you look on from a safe distance as everything else is burnt to ashes and you realize the significance of what you've just done. You have made some important choices in the moment of crisis. What you have chosen is more valuable to you than tables and chairs, china and glass, clothes, books, hi-fi equipment, and all the thousand other things that find a place in your home. You have, as it were, discovered where your priorities really lie? That is the question of our text. Not only the priorities 
for man to glorify God and enjoy him forever, but the priorities of God himself for man. And as Christians, I think this is a deeper question still. What does God require of me? Not merely what things would I save from the fire. What trappings do I surround myself with as great laws? What does God require of man? What does God require of me? Here's another way to ask it. Why were you saved? Why did God woo you and call you and love you into his kingdom and save you by his sovereign and free grace? Why? Why are you still here? Why has he not just Enoched you right up to heaven? That is at the heart and foundation of the question in our text. We're going to handle it in four ways. Our text in four ways. The outline that the text itself provides as we exposit this word of God. Four ways. First, a final inquiry. Second, about the law. Thirdly, the most important law. And fourth, a telling response. Final inquiry about the law, the most important law, and a telling response. So Mark is concluding now this section of his gospel where Jesus has been in the temple courts debating with the religious leaders with a closing question for Jesus. Perhaps the most important of all questions, what is the greatest commandment? What is the greatest obligation that man as worshiper and creature has before God, worthy of worship and creator? How will Jesus respond to this question? And, you know, as Mark loves to beg the question of his readers, how will we? Now, let me set the stage again. It's just, I think it's important to have context or we get lost, right? What's going on in Mark 12? It's Passion Week. Friday of the previous week is the triumphal entry. Jesus comes in riding the donkey. He is declaratively in word and deed the king. He comes into the city. He looks around. He looks again. They rest on the Sabbath, and then he comes back. And he comes back to do two significant works, the first of which is cleansing the temple. It shall be a house of prayer, not a den of robbers. And the second is to provide an object lesson in the cursing of the fig tree. It had no fruit, no real fruit. It looked like it had fruit, but it didn't have fruit, and it's cursed. Now it's Tuesday, and for the last few sermons, Jesus has been both disputing and explaining Torah, the law of God, to reveal to the people that he is indeed the king. This is the third round of this questioning. The first, of course, was about a coin. Whose image is on the coin? Jesus says, give to God what is God's, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Last week, John preached on the question of the resurrection, to be married or given in marriage. And this week, we come now to this scribe, this lawyer, this expert in the law of God. The first five books of Moses in particular, Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, but probably the entire Old Testament canon. And these guys were special, these scribes. They, they probably had the entire Old Testament memorized backwards and forward, and not only memorized, but they had certainly read or memorized much of the Hebrew canon law and interpretation so that they didn't only know God's word, but they knew or at least claimed to know what it meant. And he asked Jesus a question, which command is the most important? Now, to clarify, the question of importance is not a question of chronological importance, but priorities. So, Alistair Begg puts it this way, Jesus is not, therefore, reducing 
Ten Commandments to two. Jesus is not being reductionistic about the law. Instead, he is saying that the entirety of the meaning of the law and the law's central concern, love God, love neighbor, hangs on these two priorities. And yet in the asking of this question, we also see something different in the text, don't we? Because it's not only the question that is the biggest question, but it's the questioner who appears to have a slightly different posture than the Herodians and Pharisees two weeks ago and the Pharisees last week. This guy comes up to Jesus and says, oh man, you answered those guys well in verse 28. He's been listening on. This scribe, this lawyer is curious, it seems, and scholars debate his motives because the scribe is handled slightly differently in Matthew's gospel But taking Mark alone, we seem to find a guy here who's genuinely interested, curious. And this is one of the the things that Mark in his gospel repeats and repeats and repeats. Be curious about Jesus. What are your options out there, right? Human power and pleasure in some way, shape, or form, whether it be religious or whatever, Or an all-powerful personal God who loves you, made you, and has done everything to save you. Be curious. So the question that we're led to now in this third round with this scribe is basically, is it him? Again, is it, could it be? Could this be the teacher, rabbi, messiah that can really understand the Torah, the law of God? And that's why he asks him about the law, point two, because the Torah all right, when we say Torah, we, law, you just think of laws and rules. Ah, scrape, scrap that from thine large brains, infused with many years of preachers who have possibly led you astray on the matter. Genesis through Deuteronomy is not a list of rules. It is the story of God's plan to redeem his people. It is the story of salvation, creation, fall, redemption. Redemption starts in Genesis 3. When God says, I'm going to send someone to crush the head of the serpent. Oh, and by the way, here's a blood sacrifice for your sin, and I'm going to clothe you in the skins of the animal. And from Genesis 3, all the way up to the consummation, all the way up to when Jesus comes again, and come quickly, Lord, it's all the story of God's plan to redeem for himself a people that he might know them and love them, they might love him, they may serve him and be a light on a hill, and as it were, bring back the reality of the garden into a broken world. The Torah represented not a list of rules for these people. It was Israel's hope. So if you were to claim to be a rabbi, question number one, do you know the Torah? (laughs) Do you know the hope of God's people Israel? Do you know our stories? Why we're here? Why we're still here and didn't get Enoched up to heaven? Do you know what it means? And this brings up a question for us that's very important. And I only have the next 58 minutes to unpack, so buckle up. Because we're not here to, this is not TED Talk time, patty cake, nice story, hallmark, and then go watch football. This is the sovereign God of the universe helping us understand who we are and why we are in the world. The question is about the law. What is the purpose of the law? Let me just say three things here briefly. First of all, the law of God Think of the Ten Commandments in particular. The law of God is a revelation of his holy character. 
The law is not arbitrary. God didn't just make up the law. The law flows from who he is inherently in all of his perfections. The law of God reveals his holiness, his character. God is not only a God of the law, but keeps the law always and perfectly. And in that sense, the law is good in that it reflects and reveals God. But we are sinners all. And so, number two, as a result, when we stand before the law, God's holiness and perfection revealed, we are undone. The law exposes us and shows us that we can never earn God's favor. We can never be righteous enough to appease his holy demands of justice because he is just and he does not wince at sin. We are sinners in need of a savior. And so the reformers often refer to the law as a tutor, as a tutor. Think of a shepherd's staff. The law leads us helpless in our own righteousness and hopeless in our own merit to Christ. The law leads us helpless and hopeless to Christ. But to those who are in Christ, and this is what some have referred to as the third use of the law, to the rescued, to the redeemed, the law is a gift. Or at least it can be a gift as we are operating by the grace of God out of gratitude. The law is and can be a gift. Why? God has not been silent. God didn't just save you and say, figure it out. I'm glad I saved you. I'm glad I loved you. Glad you prayed a prayer at mid-school camp, which I'm not hating on because a lot of people get saved in middle school. So keep loving on the youth ministry. God didn't leave us alone. He hasn't been silent. God hasn't hidden himself. He said, look, you're a new creation in Christ and I've given you my spirit. And if you want to flourish and have joy, this is how you should live. Again, by grace alone, not in your own strength, but by grace, this is how. You see, the law comes to Israel after the Exodus, doesn't it? God's people are first saved through this glorious covenant sign of massive baptism that is the Exodus. God says to Moses, his mediator, if you believe me and trust me, you can walk through on dry ground. Even the little tiny ones who had, they had no business, they didn't deserve anything. They weren't good people, they're kids. And then the ancient of days, geriatric McGee's that needed to be carried through the waters. Everybody got to go through if they followed God's mediator, Moses, and believed. But if you didn't believe, if you didn't trust God's covenant, what happened? Pharaoh and his army, they were crushed by the waters. So Israel is saved on account of God's baptismal promise. And now the question becomes, how should we live? There's guilt. God shows us our sin. There's grace. He deals with our sin through his promises, most fulfilled in Christ. And now there's gratitude. We respond in gratitude. The Spirit empowers us to obey so that, again, we might bring about the reality of the new heavens and the new earth. The goal of God in the law for his people who are redeemed is that they might flourish. Our problem, which we'll get to in a minute, is that we are, of course, hopelessly meritorious. And so we never outgrow the process of the law leading us helpless and hopeless to Christ, that we might receive his grace, that again, we might pursue by grace obedience. It's in this context of the law that the scribe asked this question, what is the most important law? If grace, if grace for Israel should bring gratitude, not self-righteousness, not religiosity, not the, the power complex of the religious system in the temple, but gratitude, what's the greatest law? What is God's true priority for us? 
And here we see how deeply they had missed it, how meritorious they had become. Because instead of responding with the simplicity of love for God and neighbor, these guys had not only added to the law, but at the time, it was common parlance to say that there were upward of 613 laws that one must obey precisely and perfectly to be in God's good graces. Now, if you're out just doing your business like working, farming, plumbing, or I don't know, they didn't have plumbing back then, ironsmithing, whatever you're doing, this was an unbelievable burden. There was no freedom in this. You know, why did you bring us out of Egypt? It's almost better to be a slave there than to be a slave to all these laws. And that's why Jesus begins with a brilliant, brilliant synopsis, a brilliant answer. He brings us back to the word. He brings us back to the word. We see it right here. Jesus answered, the most important is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Now, if you were a Jew, if you even know any Jewish people, this might sound very familiar. This is what is called the Shema. Shema is Hebrew, just means listen, listen up, pay attention. And the Shema, the Jewish Shema, our Shema, is found in Deuteronomy 6. Remember? Hear, O Israel, the Lord is your God. The Lord is one God, and you shall love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then it goes on to say, teach these things to your kids. Bind them to your doorposts. Bind them to your heads. Take this with you wherever you go. This is Israel's vow to God. And it shows us a few things. First, it shows us that we are, as a people, before God, obligated to him. He has made promises to us. He is going to keep those promises, but we are his people. We are made to worship him, and, and God will not be mocked. There is a covenant obligation to God as his people. Listen, Israel. This is who you are. This is how God has made you, to, to know him, to love him, to trust him, and in trust to follow and obey him. It's, it's not optional. We say that you know, human beings are saved by, through the instrument of faith alone. Absolutely. It is the instrument of faith, like my massive bicep, that connects us to the grace of God in Christ. Now, some of y'all have tiny bicep, that's fine. Big faith, faith as small as the mustard seed, that instrument is sufficient to deliver to me as a subject the full objectivity of the inheritance that I have in Christ. We are saved by faith alone, that is true. And the faith that saves is never alone. That would be like somebody saying, yeah, yeah, I love God, I'm saved, I can do whatever I want, live however I want, say whatever I want, grace is my credit card, nobody cares. No, that doesn't make sense. We are obligated to God as his people. And I think part of hearing this commandment is to just sit under for a moment how lightly I, I take these things, how quick I am. Now look, I can be very spiritual about it. I know how to do it as a pastor and gussy it up and put lipstick on a pig. But trust me, when I'm driving, when I'm passing by people, when I see people do stuff, there's all kinds of stuff coming out of my heart that reveal how lightly I take this command to love God and to love my neighbor as I love myself. And the call is to love, not merely to know facts about God, not merely to have data points, but to be stirred up in our whole being and our affections. This is the essence of faith, to truly know him and trust him from the heart. Now, the text that Jesus leads us to here, the Shema, gives us a grounding for that, a basis. 
for He is the Lord. He is Yahweh. God is a personal, absolute sovereign. Now, here's what the, why this matters in your life at all, okay? You're like, oh, okay, good. Personal, absolute sovereign. Who cares? I'm going to tell you why. Because this is against all the other false gods in the world. God is not a force. God is not a crystal. God is not a self-help book. God does not get your life together. He's also not the little G Marvel Universe gods up there fighting and trying to steal your girlfriend. He is powerful. He is just. He is good. He will make all things new. He will make all things right. And he knows you by name. He is not an impersonal, detached, you know, watchmaker who just started everything and let's see how it goes. He cares for you. He knows you by name if you are his son or his daughter. He's not fickle. You don't need to worry. Is he going to change his mind about you? Will there at some point be more condemnation awaiting you? No, all is fulfilled in Christ. He is Yahweh. I am that I am. The all-powerful sovereign creator of the universe and just go back home and Google yourself up some of those images from the James Webb Telescope. Thank you, scientists and astronomers, for those images. Just sit there in front of your computer screen for a minute with some of those images from the telescope and just behold the glory and the power and the majesty of I am that I am. Colossians says, about the Father through the Son, that He holds all things together, the air you're breathing right now, by the power of His Word. And because He is God and Creator and worthy of worship, we are to love God and to love others. It says, heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now, we could take these one at a time, but we won't. The point of the text is that these overlap into the formation of what is the whole man, the whole being. Think about it, right? You've seen these movies before where some young guy, you know, sees this beautiful girl and he's smitten. It's love at first sight. And he runs up to the girl and he's like, I love you. And she's like, I don't even know you. Get away from me. Right? So to love God is, is to know him, to be with him. We have to move from this thing of spiritual high. This is, this is an American idol. This is a human idol. Of I'm, you know, I want to be entertained by God. I want him to give me my best expression of myself and this mountaintop experience. We need to move from dopamine to depth. We need to move from using God to get spiritual highs that feel good to really pressing into who he is to wrestling with God. And to do that, God has given us means. The fellowship of one another, the church, prayer, getting into his word, the sacraments, even just getting here on a Sunday. God hasn't left us alone to, to figure out how to know him. He has provided means that connect us to his grace so that when you come to church, it's actually restful. It's actually a Sabbath. Right, here's what's unrestful. You know, I know about most of you sinners. I, and I do. I know most of y'all's secrets. I got dirt on at least 83% of the room. <laughs> dirt. Y'all got dirt on me too, so praise the Lord. Right? Welcome sinners, try harder. That's not good news. Go to Barnes and Noble and get you a self-help book in 48 ways to your best life now. That is not good news. God has given us the good news means to connect us to Christ so that we might be loved by him to love him and therefore love others. And what does it mean to love others? So many things, but at the very least, how quick are we to show ourselves grace while judging other people? 
I do this all the time. Guys, I'm confessing to you. You know, I'll get frustrated with someone about something, and then thankfully God has provided me with an amazing woman in my life and a helpmate, and sometimes she'll say, you do that too, and worse than that other person. And I love you, so I'm telling you. Oh, we are so quick to show ourselves all the mercy in the world and turn to others and be like, well, I can't believe they did that or thought that or said that or looked like that. Benefit of the doubt, forgiveness, the undoing of our pride. And here's what this all means, you guys. Love the Lord God with everything you are and your neighbor is yourself, which fulfill the Ten Commandments, the vertical and the horizontal commands of God, life before God, life with neighbor. It means we don't get to compartmentalize. We don't get to tell God, all right, Lord, here's my house. There's 40 rooms, and you're allowed to go in 38 of them. Those other two rooms belong to me. No, thank you. I'll take care of those rooms. Now, to love God with all and to love our neighbor as ourself means the humility and the on-our-kneesness of being opened up to God doing work in every area of our life. So I said this morning in the membership class, there are things in the Bible that are difficult for me. But rather than me coming and saying, all right, Bible, here's how it is. I'm going to tell you how it is because here's how I feel. Rather than me reading the Bible according to my own autonomy and desires, the Bible reads me. The Bible reads me. It undoes me. It shows me where God can excavate sin and idols out of my heart and those can be replaced by the love of the Father. The Bible grows me and conforms me into the image of Christ. So the Shema says, listen up. This is serious. It's the most important command. You cannot say you love God and not your neighbor. Ouch, wait, ooh. Stop talking to me. You can't say you love God and despise your neighbor. In the same way, ooh, this is gonna, I'm sorry, but buckle up. You cannot say you truly love your neighbor and not love God. Because ultimately, you will be misleading them to something other than God, or what's worse, and what we do far more often, you'll be functionally, low-grade, subtly, so no one can tell, using them. Hear, O Israel, this is what God has commanded. This is how we are to live in Santa Fe, the broken Santa Fe, the dirty Santa Fe, the messy Santa Fe, the frustrating parts of Santa Fe. Love God and love your neighbor. And who is your neighbor? All of them. That's why the scribe's response is a telling response. This executive summary of the law, this law summary, is not the big story here, guys. It was already in the Bible, Deuteronomy 6. It was already in the Shema. Jesus just adds, love your neighbor as yourself. Vertical with God, horizontal with neighbor. No, the big story is the scribe's response. Why? Well, let me just ask you, how are you doing at perfectly keeping the first and second commandment? da 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 dum oh no. Not oh yeah, oh no. Oh, like, I, as I was praying through this this week, I was like, Jesus, help. My love for God is so often weak and frail and cold. Talk about using people. What about using God. Lord, things are hard or I'm not feeling or whatever. Rub the lamp. Give me what I want. How are you doing at keeping the first and second commandments? Let's be honest. We are in big trouble here. If this for us becomes some meritorious standard of perfection because God is holy, that means there's no excuses. And we are 
on this side of heaven, prone to wander. And yet N.T. Wright puts it this way. Think about this. It's so simple. Love God and love your neighbor. It's not hard. If people truly lived this way, most of the world's greatest problems would be solved overnight. (laughs) It's true. The scribe understands this. That's why the scribe says sacrifices and offerings aren't the thing. These sacrifices and offerings, we can do that. We can do religion. We can do the checklist. We can go through the motions, and yet our heart can be cold to God and our neighbor. But a command to love? How do you do that? How do you command somebody to love someone? Try that with your kids. (laughs) I command you to love me. I command you to love your brother, your sister. No. Again, the law can direct us. It is a revelation of God's character. The law can direct us. It is good as it reveals God, but it cannot drive us. The law is like a a defibrillator machine for a dead person, right? And you take it over and you go, but there's no electricity in it. It can direct you as what to do, but it doesn't have the power to raise the dead. And this is our problem as well, right? We know what we should do, but we don't. We're like Paul in Romans 7. The things we don't want to do, we keep doing. The things we do want to do, we struggle to do. And so Paul comes to the end of Romans 7 and cries out, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Now that is getting close to the kingdom. That's what the scribe is getting at when he says, yeah, sacrifices and offerings really aren't the thing. It's really the heart of love for God and neighbor. Who will save me from this body of death? That's getting not far, which is good, but the invitation is to enter. The invitation of Jesus Christ to you and me isn't to get close to the kingdom. It's that the kingdom has come. His will is being done to enter in as true sons and daughters. And so we cry out with the lyrics of that beautiful Andrew Peterson song, Who is worthy? Who is worthy to undo the scroll of God? Who is worthy to bear the just judgment that we deserve for all of our law-breaking? You see, apart from Christ, our obligation to God only condemns us. But in Christ, hear the words of Martin Luther. Yes, it is true, the law scolds us. The law screams at us, as does our sin and law-breaking. Death thunders at us. The devil roars at us. Don't you love Luther? And yet, in the midst of the clamor, the Spirit cries, Abba, Father. This little cry of the Spirit transcends the accusations. So let law, sin, and the devil cry out against us until their outcry fills heaven and earth itself. Because we know that in Christ, the Spirit of God outcries them all. Your house may be on fire. There may be many things that you fail to grab. Indeed, you may fail to save yourself, but know this in the gospel. Jesus will never fail to grab you. He is both the just and the justifier, the perfect law keeper for law breakers who bore the weight of the law so that the law to us is no longer a curse, but in gratitude, a gift. He will never fail to grab you. And here's the secret. Don't you actually want to love and trust and obey a God 
like that? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good word to us in Mark chapter 12. We know that the law can direct us, but it cannot drive us. God, that only your promise can drive us out of ourselves, our programs, acceptance before other people, false gods. Lord, we need your promise. We need all the gifts to us in the great lawkeeper, Jesus Christ, so that we have any hope, desire, motivation, and love at all to not have to, but want to serve you. So I pray as we come to your table, you would do that now. I pray this table would be a living illustration of that truth. Father, I pray that you would remind us at this table that you bore the weight of our law-breaking. Your blood was spilled, but you rose from the dead to conquer death itself as the great law-keeper so that we are not condemned. And out of that gratitude for your grace, we want to respond as those who trust and obey and grow. May it overflow into Santa Fe. May this meal overflow as we leave, and may our neighbors know that you are God and you are good. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.